welcome, welcome, welcome to today's Born Human podcast. Thank you as ever to all of you for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you on board. Today is my privilege to introduce to you someone who I've recently come to know, as with many people on this podcast, Sarah Jane Last. Sarah is somebody who has been on an unimaginably difficult journey um, as a parent and as a partner uh, or wife. And we're about to bring a light to a subject that is ultimately very difficult to talk about. Even saying this, it makes it it's difficult for me to kind of contextualise. But actually part of the conversation that we had is about being normal and about being real about the subject of grief. Sarah lost her husband to sudden adult death syndrome about four years ago, which we'll tell you more about on the podcast. But I hope, as she does, that this podcast brings some normality to a subject that's very difficult to talk about and really tries to take away the taboos and the stigmas that sit around it. So I hope you enjoy this and find this as informative as I did. Thank you to her for coming on and I'll leave you to us to having a chat. Welcome to today's Born Human podcast. Today I have the privilege to introduce Sarah Jane Last. Hello, Sarah. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. Good. Thank you for coming on and joining us. Sarah is someone that I was introduced to through a friend of mine, and um, she's had what I think is fair to say a rather complicated journey in parenthood. And I thought that today would be a really great way of dealing with a subject that quite frankly is very difficult to face for a lot of people and I'm very grateful that she's open to sharing her story and explaining what it feels like, what she's been through and at the same time trying to normalise that for you guys and anyone that you know who's listening. So thank you very much for coming on, it's a real privilege to have you. when did you decide you were going to have children? How how old were you when you decided you wanted to have children and how did that all come about? Well, it's I can remember exactly. So throughout my 20s, I used to run nightclubs and I was incredibly hedonistic and I had no interest in children whatsoever. <laughs> um, and my mum was like, oh, you'd make a brilliant mum. And, you know, my mum's quite sort of Mary Poppins, sort of mumsy-like um, <laughs> And I just had absolutely no interest in kids. I was so self-centered. I was, it's all about the party. It was all about, you know, what DJ I was going to follow and what outfit I was going to wear and all of that kind of stuff. And then I hit 30 and then I suddenly thought, oh my God, my next big birthday is 40. I really need to get my shit together. And I wasn't married. I think I had a boyfriend at the time that I was living with. You know, I'd been doing, you know, the sort of music career for about 10 years and I loved it. But I thought I don't want to be a 45 year old woman still running around in Ibiza. Like that's just not a cool look type thing. Um, and, And yeah, it was almost like I think probably a week or a month after my 30th birthday, I suddenly had this laser focus. Um, oh, no. And I remember, actually, I went to my sister's barbecue and there were all of these sort of 40 year old women moaning saying they hated their job and they felt like their life was over and I thought if I don't get a grip that's going to be me by the time I'm 40 I need to you know really start thinking about you know do I want to change career you know do I want to settle down and I felt like I'd done enough partying and fun for like 10 people so I felt like I'd fully got all of that out of my system um, and that I was ready for a sort of new journey in life so I think yeah that was definitely up until that point I had zero interest in becoming a mother laser focus on enjoying your life I think you know I think before you we were late having kids as well late later anyway sort of mid-30s and uh, I think one of the things that uh, I'm really grateful that we did was taking the time to enjoy our own lives before that I mean I suppose there's two ways of looking at it right either you um either you do it that way around where you kind of have all your fun up front through your younger years and then you decide okay time to get serious now and sort of step into it or I suppose for our parents and grandparents generation it was almost the other way around but I think what appealed to me about doing it this way was the fact that I didn't want to be 55 or 60 when I decided to say okay you can have some fun now because your kids are independent 
Well, no. no, I know so many people that haven't done that. And then their relationships or the children suffer because, you know, they, 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 they don't want to stay in on Saturday nights and watch X Factor. They want to still go out raving and do loads of gear. And <laughs> oh, man, like, really? Um, and so, yeah, I'm very, very thankful that I got all of that out of my system. Felt like I'd done everything sort of crazy that I possibly needed to do. And then I was read, ready for a much sort of calmer, in you know better sleep by sort of eight half eight <laughs> <laughs> rather than eight thirty in the morning which is what it used to be in my 20s yeah yes yeah, so i know that that definitely sort of worked um for me i think yeah cool and then when did you meet so when did you meet your husband uh, oh, by how organized you were it sounds like you should have met him the following week well i pretty much did so i remember <laughs> i had a very difficult breakup and I can remember, I went and did this, um, it's called NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. And actually, I think it was when I was working for Lucy. So yeah, I was, um, before working for Lucy, I'd had my own sort of business and I was living in London. So I, I somehow found myself living back with my mum in Teddington, commuting into London and working for someone else. And while I loved working for Lucy and we had so much fun, it was a bit of a sort of change when you had your own business and then you do that. Yeah. I was being very sort of grumpy and oh god my life's rubbish and rah, rah, rah. and I thought I can't bear this so I went to the bookshop on Tennington High Street and this book literally fell out of the bookshelf and it was something called how to change your life with NLP and I started reading it and I was like oh this is really really interesting I loved it and um, a lot of it was about reframing you know so instead of going oh god I've got a commute and it's awful I started seeing my commute as 40 minutes where I could learn psychology or something like that yeah and so I started applying a lot of the um, tools. And then I thought, actually, I want to go and do a course in this. I really enjoyed this. Yeah. And on the course, they got you to do this thing called a, a values elicitation. And um, all of my boyfriends previously were, are they a cool DJ? Are they a cool MC? Are they a cool music produce, producer? And are they hot? <laughs> basically if it wasn't one of those four I just wouldn't even oh and tall and wouldn't uh, I wouldn't even give them time of day and uh, that hadn't really worked out for me so you had to do um, you know what are the values that are important to you in a partner or a man yeah. so we did this exercise I remember sitting in it was disgusting like the holiday inn in Regent's Park I mean it was so minging with all of these other people and then I literally met Tristan the next week I, I kid you not and he <laughs> He ticked every single, you know, so all of my boyfriends before that had been poor. So I had like financially solvent. I had, you know, already mature, not a man child. I had whatever I was in there. And he literally ticked every single Bosch and he had a Porsche, which helped as well. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then I remember going back because the course was like every weekend or every three weeks on a weekend. And I said, I've met this guy. You're not going to believe like he ticks everything we did on this list. And yeah, and that was it. It was absolutely. So yeah. it was a whirlwind in some respects. Well, it just sounds like it was meant to be in a lot of ways. Yeah, it was. It was so freaky. Um, and I also used to have a bit of a habit of never wanting to be on my own. So I'd go from relationship to relationship. And I remember when my um, and I don't think I'd ever been dumped. I think this boyfriend was the first boyfriend, I don't know, about 28 to dump for me. And it was horrific. I absolutely hated it. I remember calling up all my old boyfriends to apologise for dumping them. I mean, it's so embarrassing. I was in tears going, oh, I'm so sorry I dumped you. It's so awful being dumped. I mean, what a knob cheese. Um, and, uh, and so I remember, I mean, I had a few dates and stuff, but I had a good proper two years of being really single because um, I read another book, uh, book I can't remember what, I think it was something awful, which has now been made into a film. Um, what was it called? It's called A Breakup because it's broken or something like that. And it's, okay. until you're really happy on your own and in your own company, you won't meet the right person. So I was like, right, I'm going to do that too. Um, and yeah, so it felt like I'd done all of these sort of good steps to lead me to this amazing man who was, who was Tristan. Yeah. Is that there's something in that, isn't there, in sort of finding happiness and peace with yourself first, yeah. because then you're able to be yourself with somebody else completely, and that in itself is a really kind of 
integral part of a healthy relationship, right? Not trying to pretend to be somebody or not, but being able to be at ease with who you are and sort of not no, apologetic for it. Exactly. And throughout my 20s, yeah, I mean, it was such a, a fun, crazy time. But yeah, I mean, and, and don't get me wrong, I had some lovely, lovely, I've always been very lucky and had very nice boyfriends. Um, but yeah, it, it was based on, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Or sex, drugs, rape, rape music, yeah. The Rolling Stones, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so how long were you together before you decided you wanted to have children? Oh, my God, well, this is, like, the most insane story. So um, his mum had died in December, um, so he wasn't in a very good state, bless him. And we met in the January, so it was almost four weeks after his mum had died. Um, we started dating, I think by the third day, I pretty much moved in with him. Um, and we were just spending every second together. And uh, both of us were a bit sort of stuck in our jobs. We weren't really thriving. We wanted to do something different. And we were having dinner um, in Marlebone and my dad called and he basically got gout. He wasn't admitting it was gout, but it was gout. Yeah. He said, I really need you um, to come and help me run some of my businesses in, um, in uh, France where he lives. And he said, you and Tristan want to move out to France and come and help me run some of these businesses. So I said to um, Tristan, should we go and live in France? He went, yeah, let's go. And that's <laughs> it. So I think in the May, so we met in the January. And it's funny because Lucy was actually here for this whole entire journey. I, I remember we went um, to Paris and, and me and him were texting uh, all the time. And so they were telling me what to write and all of this kind of stuff. So she was really you know, there at the beginning of our relationship. Yeah. And um, and yeah, so we moved to Monaco in May and I think I was pregnant by June. Wow. <laughs> Let it not be said that you don't make decisions and get on with it, I think. That's the... Uh... I mean that but when you know it's right it's right kind of thing right well I mean it was a total accident to be fair um what happened was um it was obviously very hot when we moved out there um I kept on blacking out so we went to the doctors and the doctor said the problem is that you're exercising in the heat and you're on the pill and your body doesn't like it so you either need to move out of the heat stop exercising or come off the pill mm. but you've also got polycystic ovary syndrome so the likelihood of you getting pregnant is really slim so Tristan said well just come off the pill for a bit be fine <laughs> like five seconds later I was like pregnant and he was like oh I didn't think it would happen <laughs> <laughs> and I remember when we found out it was my birthday and I was really pissed off with him because he'd got me really shit presents that he hadn't wrapped and it was like after my first birthday together but as I realized further into our relationship presents were just not his thing yeah he was brilliant at so many things presents wasn't one of them um and we'd gone out and had loads of rosé and I was being really sick and I thought it was just because I'd had like you know 50 gallons of rosé and he, he looked at me, he said, you're pregnant. I went, I'm not pregnant, don't be so ridiculous. And yeah, and it turned out that, yeah, I was. He was right, yeah, yeah. And then he totally freaked out and um, had about 12 hours of, you know, just going, oh my God, I can't do it, I can't do it. And then he called his sister who um, properly tore him a new one and then it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> he got over it and got used to it. I'm yeah. not sure there's ever a good time. Like, people say that, don't they? It's like, when when is the right time to have kids? And actually... Not that that necessarily is the way you would have planned it, but at the same time, you know, there isn't a right time. There's so many, you can always put obstacles in the way to it because there's always difficulties and challenges that you don't want to face with being a parent, right? Well, I can't imagine anyone actually sits down, especially when you're sort of 20s, I don't know, early 30s and goes, right, shall we now have a child? <laughs> what often happens, and I know to my friends, as they get to late 30s, because the clock is ticking, they have to have those conversations with new boyfriend, partner, whatever it might be. But before that, I, I can't even imagine the stats. I mean, but mm -hmm. I think if I was to guess, it's probably 10, 15% of people that actually go, right, should we now start trying? For yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you don't, I mean, it's just, it's weird, isn't it? And it does, I don't know, I think it's, it's not, like you say, it's not premeditated for a lot of people in terms of, okay, well, I'm planning towards the age of 30 or the age of 35 or whatever. You know, you might have that in your brain in terms of, like, I don't want kids before a certain age or whatever. But I think well, certainly for me, it was like, we just suddenly felt right. It just sort of felt like, okay, I think I could, I think I'm old enough, I'm wise enough, I'm sort of mature enough to be able to cope with having a kid. So I still 
fun enough, I'm fit enough. There's sort of a yeah. series of circumstances that all seem to align and, you, and it just sort of drops in as a piece of the puzzle where you go, I could probably do this now. And I suppose for you guys, it sounds like that was just somebody dropped the piece of the puzzle in a bit earlier and said, here you go, right, This is. can you cope with that kind of thing? And yes, yes, I can kind of thing. And this just takes yeah, a bit of adjusting exactly. to it. And I think I just really knew that I wanted to be with a man who was mature and grounded and financially solvent you know if you look at evolutionary psychology I mean that's basically exactly what you know women look for essentially is you know someone that's going to be able to look after the fold that they're going to produce in the world Um, and he was you know the first boyfriend that I'd ever had who really fitted that mold yeah crazy party animal definitely did not fit that mold yeah (laughs) Well, you've got proof of concept, I suppose, in some respects, to be able to say, that won't work. This this definitely could work. Yeah, Had this happened three years ago, we might have had a problem, but now it's a different kettle of fish, right? Oh, totally, totally. And he so, often used to say that. He often used to say, if you'd met me before my mum died, it wouldn't have worked, you know. His mum um, literally got diagnosed with cancer in the January and his bed dead by the December. And I think the amount of growing up and maturing he had to do in that 12 months was absolutely epic. Yeah. Um, and so it was almost, you know, he always blessed him, used to say that I think, um, you know, my mum has sent you to me to, to sort of save me. Or, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was just a, it just all felt totally right. Yeah. Um, you know, and it all kind of slotted into place. And when it does, you sort of, you know it in your gut and it's a case of uh, that old sort of saying of trust your gut. And actually there's something in that. There really is like. Well, in... books, it's all that, uh, the whole Malcolm Gladwell blink book is all about that i think i think it's blink uh, yeah. yeah about the power of trusting your gut instinct yeah that's so true so how old are your kids now so indy after named after the great indiana jones um is Perfect. 10 and two months and ziggy named after david bowie is seven he's eight in september and how how are you finding um I suppose with Indy moving towards his teenage years kind of thing it's um I, how are you finding that are they are they good kids um they are absolutely obsessed with their willies I mean you know Alexa what's the biggest penis in the world Alexa, <laughs> um can you live with one ball I mean the questions are just unbelievable um he is starting to get BO he's got really bad blackheads on his nose so we're using those bois strips and exfoliating um <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm not looking forward to teenagers, all I can say. Yeah, yeah. But generally, some... they are really good boys. They're not your classic boys. They're very creative. They're very emotionally intelligent. They're very, very kind. They're not, you know, running around with a football headbutting stuff. Yeah. They love animals. Um, yeah, very metrosexual. <laughs> very very modern very modern yeah. and, and that's yeah. that's what they need to be these days yeah. Yeah. so obviously um a few years ago you had the unfortunate loss of tristan yeah. um four years ago in the end of july yeah yeah would you mind telling us what happened and how it all sort of came about yeah so i was just finishing off my master's oh no uh so we've been in france and tristan um was running a hedge fund and he just raised like five million quid. So he was very, very stressed. He was on the phone a lot and working. And we'd sort of done a deal that when we came back, he was going to take um, the boys to his friend's 40th birthday. And I was going to stay at home on my own and finish my dissertation for my master's in business psychology because I was meant to do it in France. I didn't get the time because he was having to focus on his work. So that was fine. Um, so he took the boys off. Um, his best friend's called Solo. You can see a bit of a um, Harrison Ford theme going on. <laughs> um, uh, but Solo is actually Indian. It's quite random. Um, and it was his 40th birthday in a house, I think, in Derbyshire. And Tristan uh, took the boys and um, sadly died in his sleep. Um, it's called SADS, which is Sudden Adult Death Syndrome. And it's essentially cop death in adults. Okay. And I've never, ever heard of it before. It could happen to you, to me, to the boys at any time. And they don't know what causes it. And it's absolutely hideous. Um, I think Ziggy was three and Indy was six. 
Um, I don't think Ziggy realised what was going on, but I think Indy might have tried to wake him up when he was dead. Okay. Um, but because they were kind of little and I wasn't there. Yeah, so, I mean, just utterly, utterly horrific. So, yeah, almost four years ago. And his dad was here with me um, because they just bought a whole lot of classic cars in America through this fund. And, yeah, I mean, I'll never, ever forget that call. It was absolutely... I mean, even talking about it now makes me feel horrific mm. uh, i'm fine to talk about it but i can just you know feel it inside yeah, feel it inside um yeah and that's the moment our lives changed forever yeah mm. and he was there with friends for his friends 40th you yeah so he's got two good friends from uni and uh one's called solo one's called josh they'd all gone up there i mean you know poor solo i mean every, every and they were so close i mean you know, he used to call him all day and Solo taught non-stop and Tristan was quite introverted and shy. So Tristan used to just leave the phone on speaker, do all the cooking and Solo would be <laughs> like talking shit for hours at him. <laughs> and like Tristan just wouldn't say anything. Um, but obviously every year, Solo's birthday now, he'll be reminded of that absolutely horrific thing that um, that happened. Yeah. So yeah, it was just, I mean, mind blowing doesn't even do it justice I mean yeah it was just crazy absolutely crazy mm. and his dad I mean Tristan has a half-sister called Tamsin um but she's a half-sister and so Tristan's dad um Tristan was his only child and I think in the three years previously he'd lost his ex-wife well not three years probably five years ex-wife mum dad and Tristan all in about you know a four years sprint so yeah I mean he wow very, very, very difficult. Even just with those things, you can you can start to imagine with the, just those few little details. You can see how many people it impacts and how quickly it kicks in, and, and the things you, the gravity of the things you've got to come to terms with. Obviously, it's a huge event, and not um, not that anyone would want to come to terms with that. But it's kind of just start to see the knock-ons of kind of the the damage it does, and, and kind of how you what you have to come to terms with, really. So where were you living at the time? Where were you when it happened? Well, so in the house that we're still in now in Teddington. Um, okay. So we literally, the whole plan was we were just going to live here for a year and then we were going to move to Brighton or Cheltenham or somewhere like that. So I'm still now stuck in this massive great big house. <laughs> um, but it's good because it's given a lot of stability to the boys. Um, my way of coping when it happened was to learn everything I could about grief. So I read every book. I listened to every podcast. I went to every single grief group I could find and... Um, you know, you just presume when this stuff happens that like AA, there'd be loads of people talking about grief in a church hall somewhere. And yeah. there's not. There is such little help and support out there. Um, if people die in a specific way, so let's, let's say maybe someone dies of cancer, there's quite a lot of support for that. But in general, there is such um, a void of help and support for people grieving. It's just utterly heartbreaking. So I was like a sort of Inspector Cuso detective um, trying to find all of these various resources. Um, and uh, I desperately wanted to meet other people in the same situation yeah. to understand how they coped and would it be okay and, and just to find, you know, um, our tribe, I suppose. So... Um, I remember having Cruz very early on, which is the bereavement charity. And she said, I've never, ever met anyone. I think I was four months in at this time who has done as much in terms of, you know, trying to help the boys, trying to learn about it, trying to, you know, um, almost intellectualize it and learn about it. That's how I, I sort of coped, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And did, did you, you found that help, presumably, in terms of, did you find that it just busied your brain or did it kind of, like, did it give you peace? Or? That didn't help. Um, and the problem is, like, you know, there's a brilliant chari charity called Grief Encounter, um, but they only do North London. Um, and lots of these companies are charities, so they only have a very small catchment area. So I would have to drive with the boys to deepest, darkest North London hmm. for them to do some memory jar grief workshop on a Sunday morning. I mean, it was just, I mean, in a way it gave us stuff to do and a purpose. Um, and there was definitely some, some good bits um, from it, but I think it was more, I mean, looking back now, I was in a total state of shock, I think, for the first 18 months. Yeah. I don't think I came out of shock um until then uh but yeah 
I mean, definitely reading of the books really helped, I think. That definitely helped. There's a brilliant book by Julia Samuel called Grief Works. And it's got various sections. So if you've lost a husband or if you lost a sibling, um, and she, uh, for years, worked at Great Ormond Street, and she had to tell parents that their children were dying or about to die. Um, and I think she was patron of Child Bereavement UK or something. She's amazing. She's done TED Talks, and she's just a phenomenal human being. And I think that her book um, and her sort of podcasts and TED Talks were the most helpful by far. Yeah. Special lady. Yeah, I think it's... Um... It must be when you were saying about sort of eighteen months before you know while you were in shock. I suppose that's the body's way of sort of keeping you alive, almost really, because your reaction to that kind of news must be—it's a survival thing, right? Presumably. Well, it, it, you know, they say the absolute worst thing that can ever happen to someone is losing a child, and then the second worst is losing um, a partner. Um, mm. And it's you know. I mean, the amount of crazy things that people would say to me, oh, I know how you feel. My dog died last year. And I'm like, are you absolutely fucking kidding me? <laughs> like, shut fucking down. Not <laughs> I mean, quite the same. Um, and you just don't realise, you know, um, that no one else really, um, you know, fills that role. You know, your mum doesn't, your dad doesn't, you know, your kids don't, your friends don't. You know, it's someone who loves you unconditionally, who's who's just there all the time, who is uh, not only your life partner, but your um, children's father. You mm. know, so all of a sudden, I'm not only dealing with my grief, and also, it's very different to someone dying of old age, you know, you've got the trauma, of it you've got yeah. grief of it you've got the logistics of the probate and how am I going to survive and how am I going to earn money and then you've got two other humans grief that you have to manage as well yeah so um you know not not taking away anyone's grief because all grief is horrific um but it is a lot you know yeah. you know you're having to manage your own grief their grief plus a whole load of other random family members grief as well mm. plus then got to work and earn money plus you've got the logistics of probate and all of that kind of stuff yeah it's it's unbelievably hardcore is what yeah. I mm. how did you cope like how how do you like with with the boys for example how was it with the with the boys kind of um what what was your sort of instinct with them in terms of when it happened kind of thing presumably it was protective in nature but like how did that manifest yeah, for you I mean, it, totally was and it was very difficult because they were at different stages I remember I had to tell Ziggy three times he just didn't get it and then about three weeks later we were we were working and I remember I'd, I'd called Winston's wish and they say you've got to use the word dead you can't say he's gone or he'll be you know because they just won't get it. it it's too they'll think he's coming back next Tuesday yeah um, yeah and it was just I mean that was the most difficult thing I mean I don't even know how to I did that I mean it's just horrific um but um I always talk about Tristan we talk about him every single day oh daddy loved that tune or the Smiths is on the radio that was daddy's favorite band or daddy loved that so um I think because I'd spoken to all the charities and read all the books um I knew that we needed to try and keep him alive and also the awful thing is the ages that they are the rea reality is that they won't remember him yeah um which is another you know stab to the heart but um I just I think the thing that absolutely drives me is I don't want them to miss out any more than they already have. So that's what pushes me to work hard and to get lots of things set up in our lives. So I can be there as much as possible for them because I know that that's absolutely what they need. I mean, indie separation anxiety, even to this day, is, is very, very bad. Um, but also... You know, I wouldn't have wanted to to move from this home. So lots of the uh, the grief charities say don't make any big changes for the first you know year and a half, two years. So don't move house, don't move schools, you know, don't get a new partner, whatever it might be. Mm. Um, so I've really, really tried to keep their lives as stable and secure and loving and constant as possible. And that's how I've kind of helped them. Indy's had um, quite a lot of therapy because uh, he struggled at various times. Um, their schools have been useless, utterly yeah. 
campus. So I've had to get um, various clinical, clinical psychologists and specialists in to help to tell the teachers what to do or how to help them. Um, so yeah, I've been a bit like a, a protective mama tiger lion, essentially. And that's how, um, what sort of drives me, <clears throat> I think, to, um, yeah, to look after them and try and keep our lives as normal as possible, essentially. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I suppose that it must, like, you know, just thinking about the context of kind of supporting the kids at school and those kind of things just sort of stand out as things that you might expect a school to be able to do. But actually, when you're going through it and you're watching the result of it and think there's not enough here, something needs to change. It's almost, it's more to put on your plate, but at the same time, protectively, it's like, if it's not there at all, then the kids don't get it. So I need to find a way of doing it. So well, the tiger line sounds necessary to me. Yeah, but I'm very lucky that I'm naturally like that anyway. I've got lots of other widow friends, um, you know, who I've met through various avenues and they just don't have that ability at all. So I count yeah. myself incredibly lucky that I'm generally a fighter and a survivor and I'm quite antagonistic because I dread to think what would have happened otherwise. And I really, you know, the thing that I, you know, I, I kind of want to say to people, but I don't at the same time because it's so utterly depressing, is before a massive trauma or tragedy happens, you know, you think, oh, this person will be amazing and this will be amazing and they'll help me. And none of that is true. Mm. People are generally awful and rubbish and hurt you when you're hurt even more when you're already hurting. So you've yeah. actually got to be very, very strong and very capable. Um, and you know have your sort of eyes and hands all over everything and it is exhausting um but if you don't there's no one else doing it for your yeah. children essentially yeah. um, i'm just lucky that that's my sort of personality type anyway yeah. uh, but i've seen other widows um you know really struggle because they're, they're just not that's just not in their nature yeah uh, and it's a real shame yeah i was interested when we were talking before we came on about um it'd be great to sort of get a little bit about what it was the, the statistics you mentioned about school which really blew me away but you said that yeah, so the um, stats are that one child in every class will lose a parent before the age of 10 um and so india is a, a primary school but it, it's not a, it's got a separate infant school and since i've become widowed there's now a widow in every single year um, and I've repeatedly suggested to the school that they should, you know, they've now got four widows, the new head's only been there two years, um, and that maybe they should get some bereavement training for the staff so they know how to handle this. And it's all free, you know, Grief Encounter, Winston's Wish will come and do it for free. Yeah. Um, and it's just unbelievable. If you think, you know, that's only in two years, you know, how many widows or, or bereaved children might they encounter? Um, and uh, it's not only that, you know, children at school struggle with so many things, divorce, anxiety, illness in the family, neurodiversity, whatever it is. And teachers, most, you know, I'm probably doing a lot of them a disservice, but they, they don't get the adequate training. I think mental health training for, for teachers is half an hour. Mm. I mean, it's utterly, utterly crazy. Um, I'm actually moving into to a, a much smaller um, school in September and they've got a full time counsellor psychotherapist, yeah. um, you know, to, to, to help the children. But it, it's, um, yeah, it's just a real, real shame um, because, you know, when you're dealing with any of those things I've mentioned, your ability to focus and concentrate on the work is 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 minimised. Yeah. So actually. You know, if you were to put more focus into helping them with their mental health and their well-being, it would have a knock-on effect with the results, which is what most schools get measured on and, and care about. Yeah. Um, but, but most people that, and again, I'm massively generalising, but it's my experience that lots of people that go into education, especially state education, have a certain mindset and it's just not, you know, uh, activated in that way, sadly. Yeah. Um, and it's not their fault you know I'm a governor at the school and there's so many forms and health and safety and tick boxes and this and that that they have to do and so many constraints yeah uh, it doesn't make it very very difficult for them um but you know I think uh mental health is the number one issue in um schools in the UK mm. and it's just absolutely crazy that there's not a bigger um focus on it and and whether that's bereavement or any of the other things that I've just mentioned um until we start um 
addressing that properly at, properly at an educational level, you know, we're doing our, our children a real disservice. Yeah, I mean, that it's the same with all mental health across the board, right? It's, it is the, it's the first brick that's removed from a foundation almost, isn't it? You kind of, and gradually it sort of takes more and more away. And I think a lot of the time, if it's not, if that repair isn't done, if you're not kind of managing someone's foundation to make sure they're mentally well and that their well-being is taken care of, then the house above it will crumble at some point and actually you know you'll wonder why your school results don't work out or you'll wonder why kids turn to you know difficult situations or take go off on tangents that you really wish they didn't and it's it's not there's somebody recently said to me um as a saying that his coach once said to him and it says it's not about the bins and it, it kind of stems back to the idea that in a relationship, you know, when you have an argument over who's putting the bins out or whatever, he, all he's really saying is, is that it's nothing to do with the bins. It's to do with all the things that led up to that and the bins were just the camel that broke the, bro- yeah, broke yeah, yeah. the straw that broke the back, you know. And so in that respect, it's exactly the same with kids. And actually what, what I'm really passionate about in the same way as it sounds you are as well is that kids, you know, get it right early for them. And then when they become adults, they're not having to unpick all the things that, you know, our generation, our parents' generation and grandparents had no idea what to do. It's getting better. But actually, if we if we give them emotional intelligence and we teach them how to handle these difficult situations as best we can, then actually they're best placed to be able to do it themselves and they can be they can have they'll have more self worth, they'll be more empowered, they'll be more resilient and all those things will just flow, right? No, absolutely. And, and, you know, the mental health one, you know, I'm very sort of cynical about because I and I totally agree that we need to, you know, start with the kids because, you know, I have been very, very clear and very, very explicit about what help I needed in the early days. And people just aren't able to do it. They're mm-hmm. either not interested. They're, they've like, I've got my own shit going on. I haven't got any extra energy to help you. Um, I think the biggest thing that I struggle with is I've always been quite strong and capable. And when you're not, people don't know what to do. They don't mm-hmm. know how to deal with you. They're like, this is the image I have of you in my mind as a very strong, capable person. And now you're on the floor in floods of tears, you know, crawled up like a baby. And I don't know, I don't know how to cope with this, this Sarah. This is not yeah. the Sarah I have in my mind. Um, and, you know, it kind of drives me up the wall, all of this, you know, mental health and well-being week and this, that and the other, because the reality is, you know, and it sounds awful, you've only really got yourself. And I've had to learn that the hard way um, because, you know, it's only really the therapists that I have paid that have been able to help me. There mm. have been, you know, I, I can't really think, I mean, there's been a couple of lovely friends um, and they can help to a level um, but the idea that, you know, if you're really struggling with your mental health and you reach out, like I never used to understand suicide before at all. I thought it was the most awful thing ever. And now I totally and utterly get it because I'm someone who's very open. I will ask for help. I'll be incredibly explicit about what I need. And I still didn't get what I needed. Mm. So imagine if you're feeling, you know, suicidal or really, really horrible and you watch people like me saying this is what I need this is the help that me and boys need this would be most useful and people still don't do it or give it then they go well what hope what hope have I got yeah I feel very confused about the whole mental health um sort of charge that's going on at the moment because my experience is um people don't help you know Mm. I said to you earlier you know both of I've got two therapists because I'm greedy um, and both of them said um, it's only about 20% of the entire population who are really able to help others and put their own stuff to one side and still be able to help and give to others. Most people are so self-centered or self-absorbed or unaware or uneducated or whatever it might be um, uh, that they just can't offer help to others. And you, if you think about that, you know, 20% is really quite a small percentage. Yeah. And as you said, going back to the kids, you know, one of the main things that I drill into my my boys is, you know, kindness. Always be kind. You never know what someone's going through. They've got so many friends who are autistic or ADHD or whatever that might be. So they really, from a young age, are understanding that people process and understand the world in different ways. And my hope is, you know, and they're already, you know, 
seem to be very emotionally intelligent that that will will carry on and I think for men um yeah absolutely you know key and critical um, yeah forward well kind of without it like it's you know as you say there's you know for generations past we're kind of we're working backwards aren't we really we're trying to you're trying to change people's behaviors and change people's attitudes and fundamentally i think when you you know when you look at uh subjects like racism and sexism and you know, misogyny and all those kind of things they don't get changed overnight sad thing is they get changed when people die basically and the next generation come along and say yeah. it's okay we've got a new view on it yeah and dead man shoes says that that's not how we do things anymore. And, yeah. you know, work to some extent is no different to that. You know, like the, the state of well-being in the workplace is like a, it's a modern thing. And, you know, we find that we're born human. There are some businesses that are open to what we're doing. There are other businesses that are so antiquated and old-fashioned that they kind of, they're not interested. It's not oh, their style. I know. But there's no I, point in trying to convince them, you know. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, that is um, uh, one of the most heartbreaking things. I mean... I do a lot of work for myself, I do some work for other people, and I would say that nearly every single organisation I work with more or less shares the same set of issues. And you just think, oh my goodness, I mean, in order for all of this to change, something absolutely monumental needs to happen. And you would have thought that a global pandemic like Covid <laughs> might have kicked them into touch, but yeah. it would seem, you know, a few of them have seen the light, but sadly, um, you know, lots haven't and um and yeah it's it, it's it's difficult and i think you're right that actually the main way to change it is focusing on you know the early minds and um and really instilling in them you know a different set of values different mindset different way of approaching things because um i know from when we assess leaders all of that stuff is formed pretty much by the time you reach teenage you know all of your character really is is formed sort of um secondary school and university yeah. uh, and obviously you'll know from attachment theory you know the first seven years are absolutely critical so that's where we should be putting you know so much effort and energy um if we really want to change the world essentially yeah. how did you how do you find your relationship with sort of friends and family changed as a result of it all like, oh, obviously yeah. you said it was difficult in terms of support but yeah, so I joined this uh, group called um, Widowed and Young, uh, Early Doors. And I remember everyone putting these things like, it's not the person who's died that is causing me the most pain. It's the people who are still living. And I didn't really understand it. I was like, what are they going on about? And I so get it now. I mean, that it's really funny. I think in all my therapy sessions, the amount of times I'd actually talk about Tristan, probably 10%, 20%. You know, I'm quite a realist. It's happened. There's nothing I can do about it. I can't bring him back. It's utterly shit. Um, but it is what it is. Um, and that, without a doubt, is the absolutely hardest thing to deal with. Mm. Uh, how your friends and family change, treat you differently, don't offer the support that you thought they were going to. I mean, if someone had told me this is how that they would behave and react before this happened, I just wouldn't have believed them in a million years a Sunday mm -hmm. I mean I think what was it and I won't say who but uh it was a first tier family member three months in um if you carry on being so miserable no one will want to come and see you and help you was one comment wow. uh, another comment as I called them in tears on a Saturday night well it's your own fault you're so lonely if you don't get out there and meet someone new what do you expect Wow, so you're in so much pain, and then you've got people who you think would be there for you, whatever, saying comments like that. I mean, mm. oh my god, I mean, just unbelievable. So, yeah, that without a shadow of the doubt, not helping the kids with their grief, not trying to do all the other bits and bobs, not dealing with the fact. I mean, I was having a laugh with a friend yesterday about, um, and I've got quite a dark sense of humor, but um, when Tristan, um was to be cremated they said like what outfit do you want him to wear and I was like doesn't fucking matter he's going to be burned just like, <laughs> put him in there naked and like I remember my friend in the funeral parlor like crying her eyes out like oh god this is so awful and I was just like I'm not going to waste like a good like suit that's going to be like you know burnt so none of that stuff even touches the surface to how 
your you know family and friends how you thought that they would behave and how they don't basically yeah. and i i tried every single strategy in the book you know from being very sort of weak and needy and vulnerable to being very direct and very clear to doing stuff face to face to doing it on email to doing it on text to asking friends to tell them what i might need in terms of help and support and yeah um yeah none of it worked none of it worked so um, ultimately you can come to the conclusion that you look after yourself and that's kind exactly. of how it needs to be exactly and i have a very very small circle of friends who get it who are utterly amazing and I cling on to them for dear life and I would literally walk on hot coals or go and murder someone for them um, because I am eternally grateful for the help and support that they've given um, me and the boys over the year, but I can count them on one hand. Yeah. Yeah. It's strange how those sorts of situations, obviously I've never been through anything on that with that gravity, but you when you do find adversity and you, you do see people's true colours, don't you? And actually... Oh, it just adds to the pain of like, well, how, like, how can you not see that I need something different right now when you're as explicit as you can be with it? Well, and that's what I was saying about the whole mental health thing. And while I struggle, when I see all this stuff on Facebook and Instagram, I'm just like, it's bullshit. It's just, it's just not, you know, we need a different approach. This is nonsense. Mm. Um, And yeah, it's just, yeah, that without a struggle, struggle, uh, you know, shadow of a doubt has has been the absolute, yeah hardest thing to get my head around but I am hard as nails now (laughs) there is nothing or maybe a few things that life cannot throw at me that I wouldn't like be pew 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 (laughs) um but yeah it's been a very long and um uh ongoing process and I would say yeah definitely therapists and, and and I would say and obviously I'm biased but um psychologists clinical psychologists i have found to be the most helpful um by far because they're trained in lots of different modalities and i've needed different things at different times sometimes i've needed something more informational and intellectual sometimes i've just needed to be listened to sometimes i've needed strategies what understanding of why other people are doing different things um so i generally find that um yeah, because they have multiple points of training rather than just um, like, let's, let's say, psychodynamic or psychoanalytical. They could offer me um, a greater, you know, tool bag um, yeah. to get through it with. Um, yeah, but but that was invaluable, I would say. Absolutely invaluable. Yeah, I suppose it, sound, it sounds like I mean, you're lucky in some respects, lucky to be able to have that information and be have that inquisitive mind that kind of encourages you to self-reflect and to know what you feel you need and what you want from people which are, it sounds like it's been a huge asset to you in terms of being able to find a way to cope but I suppose for other people it sounds like listening to and again comes back to trusting your gut that we said earlier kind of thing of like what it feels like you need is to go and seek that out and find it at that time and if clinical psychologists sound like they've got more tools in their bag than it sounds like they might be the right route for quite yeah, a lot of people well, to I mean, start. And the awful thing is that you know lay people don't understand the difference between a counsellor and a psychiatrist um you know the psychiatrist is just going to give you pills pretty much and not a lot mm-hmm. else and you know generally and again it's a massive generalization but but counsellors tend to be a lot more passive and say you know, not a lot and let you speak. And some people really need that and that's all they need. But I, I just needed something something different. But yeah, I, I um, one of my lovely friends, Jo, she, um, I don't know if you remember, it was all over the news. Um, a family went out on a boat in Cornwall and I think the four kids and the mum or the dad died and only one parent survived. It was absolutely horrific. And she'd been... Um, their therapist because um, they happened to be kids at the school that they were all at and she recommended her um, and again so I would say pick a therapist that is experienced in grief and bereavement because you know lots of them might have a little bit of experience in that but not a lot um, and yeah just utterly utterly invaluable and in the early days I'd see her once a week and then I'd sort of go to once a month and now I just when I'm having a shocker I'll just call her up and go come on can I speak on Monday um, and all of that kind of stuff so I definitely you know saw her a lot at the beginning and then 
Um, but what's great as well is having that ongoing relationship with someone. They know all the different people in your family. You don't have to start from scratch each time. Yeah. They give you enough time to see your patterns of how you deal with stuff and how you behave. Um, yeah. So so. Um, but the problem is it's expensive as well, and lots of people can't afford it. You know? Yeah, that, that's the challenge, right? It's it's kind of. I mean, it it's a difficult one because I think with um, with kind of mental health and, and well-being and kind of looking after yourself, it's it's partly perception and financial perception. And you're absolutely right. There are lots of people out there who can't afford it. But I think actually, uh, say, you know, counselling to me was a dirty word until I was kind of 30 or so. It's just like, I don't need that. I definitely don't need that stuff. You know, that's for crazy people, not for me. Um, then I realised I could do with some and I tentatively went into it. And then what I realised was that I, after a while, once I'd got over that initial bridge of like, um, okay, I'm paying someone to talk to them and there's value in that and I start to see the value come back, then that value feels like a really worthwhile way of spending money. And obviously that's, you know, I'm fortunate enough that to be able to spend money on it and commit a percentage of what I earn oh to God, that. I mean, I'd have it like twice a week if I could. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I just love it. You know, it's so rare that someone will intently listen to you and your story without any judgment, you know, and, and I, I do it, you know, with my, with my friends, you know, you really don't want to be biased and you don't want to be judgmental, but you, it's just almost impossible not to be. And I just think um, it's, it's, you know, that's the unique gift that therapists of, of all kind can give people. Um, but, but yeah, it, 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 it's obviously not ava openly available to, to everyone, which is, yeah. um, you know, a real shame. I mean, the awful thing is, I remember going to my GP, I mean, they just give you no help whatsoever. He tried to give me lorazepam and diazepam, and thank God I didn't take that, because I'd probably have a drug habit that I'd be trying to kick at the same yeah. time. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. Actually, you know, when this stuff happens, there is honestly so little support, and I had to go and seek it, find it, and I was just lucky that that was my way of coping um but 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 it really is um a, a tragedy that that there's not a better infrastructure you know what i would love to see is just like you have aa or na meetings you would have um grief ga grief anonymous yeah rock up to any hall or any zoom you know because aa is what a million times a day you can yeah many different groups um and i, I think <laughs> that is is the model that um you know would help so many people because you know so many people are grieving in so many ways it could be miscarriage it could be um you know someone who's actually died i mean i think divorce i mean so many of my friends are getting divorced and i'm a child of divorced parents and i remember i was you know when i was doing my um psychology degree because i'm a child of divorce i would structure a lot of my essays around it and in a way i think it can be worse on the children than death Mm. and and the research actually backs that up because it, it's <clears throat> constant if it's a toxic divorce it is never ever ever ending you know with my boys they had one massive trauma and we're slowly healing from it mm. you know with divorce you have a massive trauma and then every week or every couple of weeks you, your mum and dad have a massive barney or the dad says i'm not having them this week or he's gone off with a new what whatever it might be it's yeah. constantly reactivating that trauma um, and I, I think the big difference is I can talk about Tristan till the cows come home. Lots of people who are divorced, it's it's almost like a you feel you can't moan about it. You can't talk about how utterly difficult it is. And I, I think divorce or people who are going through divorce and separation, it needs a lot more um, awareness of how unbelievably hideous it is on, on all parties involved. Um, yeah. Because I do think it's a huge, huge, huge trauma. Well, I think what, what I sort of take away from you know your honesty in it is that actually the shared experience and that's proof of why we are having this conversation right is, is there's there's value to be had in the shared experience and somebody like yourself being as honest as you are about what it feels like and I've never been through it I can sympathize with it in, in terms of how tragic it is but I've not been through it so I don't have I don't have the same empathy that somebody who might be have gone through a similar thing and actually when you hear that and that's my experience certainly of supporting dads with mental health is that that is so powerful to just hear somebody else and be like a i'm not on my own b that there is light at the end of the tunnel be it in different guises in different stages 
And that just seeing that sense of hope and reality being that somebody's a bit further down the line than me and actually they're still going and their kids are okay and they're, you know, they're surviving and they've found a way to cope with it um, is so powerful. And actually it's fundamental to us being human, right? Is that you need that shared experience. And I think think it's with so many things in life and the words a bit overused now, but it's about finding your tribe. You know, I've got the Mm. most, gorgeous widowed friend who weirdly we were at school together she was in the year below me we were in the choir and the guys <laughs> together but I hadn't seen or thought about her since I left this particular school at about 15 um, and about six months after Tristan died I got an email on Facebook and she said I'm I don't know if you remember me but um, you know we were at school together and my husband um, has just died um, and we you know have have, have been you know friends since that moment and you know on a weekly basis you know she called me up this week and she said I am just so lonely you know she's same as me three four years in I'm so unbelievably lonely I can't imagine that anyone's ever going to love me like that again I'm going to be on my own forever la 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 and you know most people looking outside go oh you know they're doing okay you know and the reality Mm. is just, just so unbelievably um different you know it's father's day coming up as well it's just you know you would think wouldn't you uh father's day's in a couple of weeks i've got quite a big family you would think that one of them would have flagged it to say what are you guys doing should we come and cook you a roast do you want to go yeah. out for dinner nothing you know yeah. and, and and it's not and the thing is as well and why it's so important to find your tribe is i thought there was something wrong with me i thought i must be this horrible evil person that people don't want to come and help me and my family but you go on to any of these grief groups and everyone is saying exactly the same thing yeah um and it's utterly heartbreaking you know for people who are already in so much pain to just be forgotten about and as i said you know um i was talking with lots of my single mum friends the other day and you never get invited anywhere anymore mm. Whether you're a widow or a single parent or a divorcee, you know, whether it's, you know, the women think they're going to you're going to steal their husband or something ridiculous, but you don't get invited to things. And again, it's, you know, it is just gut wrenching. And so my message that I would want people to take away from this is, you know, almost every week, you know, think about your friends and your people, you know, or the people you know at school and just just do a couple of random acts of kindness. You know, mm. say, do you want to go for a drink on a Friday night? Do you want to play tennis on a Saturday? Do you want to, your kids want to come from a play day? Because, you know, the the outward perceptions, I guarantee you people look at me and go, she's fine. She's smashing it. And yeah. the mess- messages I'll get, oh, you're so strong. I haven't got any option but to be strong. Yeah. I don't want to be strong. I'd much rather be an utter, you know, weakling, vulnerable mess and have Tristan here looking after me. Yeah. Uh, but they just presume because they outwardly see you smiling occasionally and being okay, that you are okay. And, you know, really it couldn't be further from the truth. So, you know, just look within your your circle and think, you know, who could do with a little bit of extra TLC or a call this yeah. week? And it takes so little time and it, it means so much to someone else, but so few people do it. You yeah. know, uh, what am I going to do this weekend? What fun thing? Where am I going to go shopping? Where am I going to go to that nice party? And so few people actually think about others. Yeah. And, and, and you happens. don't ever know, do you, like what other people are going through? I think that's the one thing that I've learned in getting older, as you do, that you sort of, in wisdom, sort of coming to that point of recognising the fact that, I think when I grew up, I kind of felt like, oh, why are they being like that with me? I've not done anything to justify that, making it all about me. When actually, as a as a grown up now, I'm able to kind of see there could be a million reasons that they're doing what they're doing. And actually, I need to cut them some slack. It might be the reason that I used to think it was. And if it is, it's probably not going to hurt me. Well, but actually, to take the time to sort of ask and to find out is not a bad thing. And you know what? I know that I'm doing such a good job with my boys because someone cut me up the other day in the car and went, oh, wanker. And obviously, I, I swear far too much. And Indy went, mummy, he might be having a really bad day. You just don't know what is happening in his life. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, I was kind there of a proud in equal measure. Yeah. <laughs> kind of highlighting your own insecurities thing cracky how have i how can i portray that to you but yet be so obviously yeah uh... bless him bless him and it just made me laugh so much when they kind of repeat you know when you're not in that stressed oh my god i'm gonna die on the motorway type thing yeah um, moments and you do have pearls of wisdom that sink into them sometimes um yeah. 
yeah um you've got to test them that's the way to look at it you have to test their theory make sure they're listening because if they're not listening then they would not be saying that so that i think that's a a, a good case study that's the way to look at it how um one last question which i don't uh, yeah how comfortable you are with but how does the future feel for you in terms of obviously you're still young relatively and like in terms of new partners and those kind of things how does that feel well for you? i mean the reality is you know i know that tristan wouldn't want me to be on my own um but the reality is i have my boys every single day 365 days a year i haven't yeah. got anyone who um you know will look after them also they're not really comfortable going to other people i can get the odd you know looking after but any new relationship or any new partner is going to want to go away at the weekend they're going to want to do all these things so I've kind of written that off for now mm. but also Indy said if you get a new boyfriend I will slit his throat okay so, probably not the right time for everyone's safety it's probably a good uh, idea to wait exactly. yeah um, and I also think because, I mean, Tristan was an amazing dad, but because we talk about him every day, almost like he's still here, I just think they think it would be like the ultimate yeah. tale. And also around us, you know, all of my friends are splitting up or having a, or something. And, and I think they see all of this going on and go, well, it doesn't kind of end well when so-and-so gets a boyfriend, you know, that doesn't yeah. really generally work out. So, you know, I think, you know, that that is... Um, and to be honest, between the dog, the four cats, the two kids, the running the business, the Airbnb, and trying a bit of self care, there, there's there's no space for much. No, for yeah. sure. I yeah. see that. I just you know I was just interested from a point of view of other people that are going through a similar thing. How you know how it feels to kind of think about what that might look well, like and what it might. Thing is all of the stats, and again, this is in Julia Samuel's book. Um, when it happens to men, they have remarried within two years. So when men are widowed with um, uh, young children, yeah, they are remarried within two years of it happening, usually. I think it's something yeah. like 82%. Uh, women tend to go one of two ways. They either meet someone very quickly or yeah. they don't meet anyone for um, ages, and I am definitely in that camp. And do you know what? I've worked so hard to get our lives on an even keel and to get a good rhythm and to be okay with being on our own and all of that kind of stuff. You know, it's a credibly high-risk strategy to invite someone new yeah you are vaguely safe bubble um and i'm quite philosophical you know if it's meant to happen it will happen you know i'm definitely not going to go looking for it um but no we're, we're i mean it's taken almost four years but we're in in quite a good um space now and yeah i don't want to risk yeah i completely understand that like in terms of you know you you create this you you've learned to kind of create a new normal and yeah. actually what what why would you want to upset that apple cart and kind of go back to all the trauma that you've been through? And actually, for your kids, like the protective nature for them must be huge in terms of making sure you don't upset that. So we had an incident at the weekend and it just brought a tear to my eye. So uh, one of my best friends, Sophie, she's got a lovely new partner called Lance. And we were all in Brighton and he was just being so lovely with Ziggy. And you could just see that Ziggy needed that wanted that and so there's moments when that and I go oh god maybe I should you know Indy is very anti it but because Indy's the oldest he's almost tried to adopt the role of Tristan yeah. so I think he feels very protective but you could just see how much joy you know even talk about it now oh it just makes me feel sick um you know that, that Ziggy got from that relationship so it's yeah. a really really difficult one I think if the person was right and the situation was right then we would consider it but yeah, I think I think that's that's going to be very 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 difficult. And you know they they might change and and change their views, but at the moment, Indy is absolutely it ain't happening, mate. No, yeah. they come they come first, oh, really. But also, yeah, they hundred percent come first, hundred percent. And I'm quite you know unique in that. Lots of people sadly don't put their kids first, but mm. I mean, hundred percent they are first. But as I said, it's like musical beds. So there's a dog in my bed. You know, Indy or Ziggy will swap in and swap out. So the idea of any new, I mean, I just don't know how the hell that would work. No. Keeping in the hammock in the garden. <laughs> <laughs> not, not one for now, by the sound of things, by any stretch of the imagination. But um, if uh, Dave Grohl decided that he didn't want to be with his wife anymore, and I joke about this a lot, and it drives the boys mad, <laughs> I'd make it an exception for Dave Grohl. 
Well, now that's in the public domain, I imagine if they ever go through a divorce, then they'll be straight on the phone and be popping down to Teddington. Don't move, don't move, just in case. Well, listen, it's been really lovely to have you. Thank you so much for your honesty and for being so real about kind of what it's been like for you and um, for helping others, because I do genuinely believe that these conversations do change outcomes for other people. So thank you very much for coming on. It's been a real privilege to talk to you. It's been a little bit heart-twingy, but it's been uh, great to talk to you. I don't know how, you know, um, when we first had this conversation about doing it, and obviously I sort of understood what you've been through, I, I said to my wife, I said, I don't know if I'll be able to hold it together, um, <laughs> let, let alone, so I, I tip my hat to you. I think it's incredible, and as I say, for all the people that are listening to it, the value they'll get from, from it is, is really valuable. So thank you very much for your honesty. And it's been a pleasure, and I'm sure we'll speak again soon. All right, Andy, take care. Thanks, take care. I can't even begin to imagine what that must have felt like and still feel like today. And I think what Sarah has demonstrated there to me is the power of human resilience, the sheer strength of character she's got, and yet at the very same time, the level of vulnerability to acknowledge the fact that of course, you're never okay after something like that has happened. What you do is you learn to cope and you learn to find a place for the grief that you've got to handle in that kind of situation. Of course it's something that we hope never happens but when it does it's colossal it's such a huge and significant thing and how you cope with that as how she's coped with that as a partner as a parent as a person is nothing short of incredible to me um, a huge thank you to her for coming on it, it really has hopefully brought some light to a very difficult subject and open the door to honest conversations and I hope for those people listening it's clearer how you can support people by asking what they need rather than dictating what they need and at the same time for those that are going through it themselves there is there are others going through it as well and you're not alone. Thank you so much to Sarah for coming on and to all of you, please like and share specifically this one to those around to raise awareness for what we're going through here. Until next time.